buttoned that up. <laughs> I'm very relaxed, as you can tell. I've been stretching. And is it mine? Is, is mine medicine? Is that you full time now? Nah, nah, no. Nah, I, I'm an associate professor of psychotherapy at a place called Icon, and also do um, some clinical work, clinical supervision uh, for integrative psychology, and then do the My Medicine Institute work as well. So, um, can we just go over what psychotherapy is for? Because um, I. I don't know, and this is yeah. something that you sort of you get yeah. an agreement. You're like, oh yeah, yep, no worries. I know what that is. So, psychology, um, not what psychotherapy. Well, uh, psychotherapy means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. First yeah. of all, but uh, psychotherapy comes from the Greek psychotherapia, which means therapy for the soul or the mind. So, psychology is really a science first and foremost. It's the study of the mind. And then they apply certain therapeutic strategies like CBT, and that's a kind of psychotherapy. Yeah. So you might say that psychology developed out of research, but psychotherapy as a practice developed out of working with problems, in particular working with problems of trauma. So mid-1800s, uh, you have the rise of what they called the hysteric people who are very unwell, traumatized women, you had... Yeah, is that a um, uh, hysteria? That is a fairly... That's a, that's a, that's a female-derived word, isn't it? Like Yeah, hysteria. It's literally... It's, its original um, formulation was that it was caused by a wandering uterus. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's where the dildo was invented, wasn't it, as a treatment for, that's, for female that, hysteria? That's right. Look at you, mate. Oh. <laughs> mate, I've done my research on medical sex toys. Hist- med- med- medical historian. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, it was one of the treatments for, uh, for hysteria, uh, but along with hysterectomies and a whole bunch of other things, Freud uh, famously developed a psychoanalysis, uh, which was a response to the treatment of hysteria. So... The history of psychotherapy is really bound up in the treatment of trauma. And psychology is really about the study of the mind and the study of um, how these therapies work and their effectiveness and those things. But psychologists practice forms of psychotherapy. Yeah, I was going to say, because the way you're explaining it now, it's almost like psychologists are not really the right people to be treating problems. Well, no, I mean, they're trained in particular kinds of psychotherapy. So in particular, there's a lot of focus on cognitive behavioral therapy in Australia for psychologists. And that's, it's not that they're, it's not that any of these are right or better or, or any of those things. You've got psychiatry, you've got psychologists, you've got psychotherapists, you've got counselors, you've got social workers, all of them do really important jobs. Um, and all of them are really, really good at different things. And there's a lot of crossover between them as well. And really the efficacy of, of an approach, you know, is, is probably the wrong way of thinking about it. I think for me, the most important thing is the quality of the person who's conducting the therapy that's really mm. the, the instrumental thing that decides how, how good or how useful it often is. So, yeah, I wouldn't want to criticise any of those approaches, but... Uh, my view is that we need to take a broad-based approach to treatment. We need to use whatever works, wherever that comes from. So whether that's 
from science or whether that's from a different culture or whatever it is, if it's going to help, I believe we should find ways of using it. Yeah, and I mean that's I mean that's what we're hoping a lot of our audience will get out of, of, of podcasts with people like yourself is like there's so much white noise out there, and if you've got to mm. find it yourself, like I had to, it's it's the hard way to do it. It takes five six years to yeah. figure some of this stuff out. Yeah, and when when I eventually did um, decide it was time to go and see a site, I should have done. I realised now I should have done mm. it ten years earlier. Um, but it was just starting from scratch and without any kind of education. It was like a psych's a psych. Psychiatrist, psychologist, I know they're different words. Yeah. Don't know the difference in anything else. You go to a GP, they send you to a psych. And it's like I had to go psych shopping to find someone that, that started to – but yeah. I eventually found a dude who you could tell came from a pretty yeah. touchy past. And I'm like, this dude's learned some shit along yeah. the way. And then then I got along a lot better with him. But is, is there like a, a, a default model? Because I, I speak to people now and they're like, dude, for what you're looking for, you need to see a psychotherapist because yeah. I want someone to break me and then put me back together. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I mean, we could talk about that. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, the when you look at psychotherapeutic research, what we know is that therapeutic technique or modality is one of the smallest contributors to the efficacy of the treatment. The most important thing is the therapeutic relationship. And the most important thing within within therapeutic control is the therapeutic relationship. So it really is about finding people you fit with, yeah. people that feel like they're a good fit to you. And great psychotherapists have the capacity to shift who they are and how they are to meet the needs of the people they're with. Mm. And I, I, look, uh, you know, Psychologists, psychiatrists, psychotherapists—all of all of the great ones have the capacity to do that. I think is figure out how to be in order to meet you. I I um, did a lot of training in Jungian psychology, and one of the great things I learned in that training was we watched these really old archival videos of um, Jung's patients. And for those who don't know, Carl Jung is a very famous psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and. They all said something similar. They all said he knew who to become for me. He was able to be who I needed him to be. Mm. I, I learned a lot from that. There's a kind of um, protean quality that good psychotherapists have, being able to match. Like I know I've worked quite a lot with soldiers, and uh, you know, often the complaint is they've been treated, you know, by you know a young twenty-something psychologist doesn't know anything speaks to them in formal technical language does all these kind of things and you know i'll sit down with them and i'm you know big and got tattoos and all that stuff and i'm like yes yeah, what's going on mate you know he's like oh not much you know did i was like, i've heard you picked up a bit of head noise you want to talk about it not really i'm like all right fair enough well just give me the sit rep on what we're doing here then Mm. You know, what, what's the what's this about? And straight away, just the change in language, the change in style, you know, just puts people at ease and yeah. allows them to reach in. I often say when I'm teaching this, particularly when you're working with soldiers, is you have to move from being a doctor to being a doc, right? Like this, this difference between a doctor, the person who you get sent for evaluation, and the person who has the power to you know give you the boot you know do all these things that actually might be against your will versus a doc the person who is there you know is with you is you know 
you know, some of the embedded good ones. Or, or, yeah, like the like the RAP docs. Yeah, 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 what I was going to say, the good doctors shoot back, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so um, yeah. So that those those are one of the features that as a as a psychotherapist working in that space, I think it's really important to cultivate is a is a way of relating to and connecting to the lived experience of of, of what these people have gone through. So does that is that something like learning to be or, or shift your you know what you need to be for someone? Is it so that they have they can draw that respect to you? Like I'm trying to draw this down a path of like the placebo. They have to trust and believe what you're saying, otherwise they're not going to take on any of... Well, of course, a trusting, safe relationship is the most important feature of the therapeutic relationship, and you have to be able to build trust. Now, how do you build trust in situations where people feel fundamentally unsafe? You have to... You can't demand it. You have to earn it. And... You know, in situations where, you know, particularly with, I'm going to keep drawing this back, obviously, um, to soldiers, but trust is the the moral imperative, right? When you're when you're, you know, downrange, you're in a, you're in a you're in a real life situation. You need to be able to trust the people have you have your back, got your six. You know, that's in that's an important feature. So how does someone who's not of that world and not of that space earn that trust? How do you how do you do that? Well, it's it's not easy to do. Mm. You have to find you have to find a way of connecting. Otherwise, it's something that's always coming from the outside and it's always being done to, and it's not of working with. And so, you know, I often, um, you know, make the joke, um, you know, when I'm when I'm teaching this stuff is. Um, you know, every soldier loves a good mission, you know, and the treatment has to, in some sense, become a mission that you are on together, that we're collaborating together on this journey, on this task, and this is the next, the next thing for for us to work through and work on together. And if you can activate that collaborative, connected register, a lot of things can happen. Yeah, because I, you see um, a lot of that fit between – like, do they do a psycho – like, do you – I mean, when you're teaching young students to become psychiatrists, they cite you – like, you psychoanalyze that particular demographic that you're going to go on and treat and – Well, not so much psychoanalyze, but, yeah, it would learn about. I'm, I'm very big on – when I'm teaching this stuff is very big on the idea of the subjective experiences and trying to get to the inherent – personal meaning complexes so if you look at the dsm uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is categorized by a number of things and if you've got that then you've got ptsd but that to me has always seemed quite foolhardy because a soldier who's suffering from ptsd is very different from a molestation victim who's very different from a bushfire survivor who's very different from someone who's had a home invasion who's very there's different qualities to them. And it's really important to understand the moral and psychological qualities of each presentation type. Uh, have you guys uh, read Jonathan Shea's book, Achilles in Vietnam? Have you? No, no. Fantastic, yep, fantastic book. Uh, one, of the, one of the great gems in this space. He wrote um, Achilles in Vietnam and the other one was Odysseus in America. But in... in Achilles in Vietnam, he uses this term moral injury to talk 
you probably heard that term. Oh, it's the new PTSD replacement. When they realised PTSD therapies weren't working for most veterans, they're like, it's got to be something else. When they jumped straight to moral injury. Yeah, so that's Jonathan Shea's term, right, is, is moral injury. And, you know, understanding, you know, from a clinical perspective is, is really interesting because you can explain something but not understand it. And how does a civilian understand war, for example? How is it possible to understand it? The moral and social register of civilian life in Australia has a whole series of values and assumptions that are completely ruptured in the context of war. Yeah, I think they're completely, they're completely an anathema to each other. And so it, it's very easy, I think, to judge from a comfortable external position with a set of moral values that actually don't apply in the moral context of warfare. And trying to really understand that, really trying to understand it, is um, it's hard as a clinician. I've certainly found it hard at times, uh, hearing, hearing certain things, you know, that my moral kind of response in, a, in this world is like, oh, that's not okay. But then getting into the contextual experience of like what it's like being there in this situation, you're like, oh, geez, yeah, that's actually... Yes, it's stuff that stops getting black and white and in that grey area, isn't it, where we live? That's right. That's yeah. right. And I, I think, think that's it, important. It's going to get worse, but over time, if we keep going the way we're going, because the way Western society is now built and the morals and the values that we're mm. pretending are the ones that exist in the whole of the real world, they're getting very disconnected from the third world. They're getting very disconnected from death and violence. That's right. Yeah. Um, and the more we insulate, especially young people that grow up with none of it, they've never experienced death, they've never experienced yeah. violence or, or any real threat, um, their morals and values are, are definitely going to have a, a bigger disconnect from that of, of soldiers. And, that, and that's when we start to see the, the general yeah. public really not, um, liking military members when they come back from war because they believe yeah. that that is still barbaric and that we're 100, 200 years behind them. Yeah. It's like, well, it's the same political leaders that are that are yeah. manufacturing both of these what's kind of mentalities. I'd say a quote, um, was it Orwell? He said, for you to sleep comfortably in your bed, there are rough bad, men or something. bad men in dark places doing yeah. terrible things or yeah. whatever it is, you know. On your behalf. On your behalf, yeah. yeah, exactly. Tell me, what do you guys, I mean, how does that all play into, I guess, the recent controversy with um, uh, Ben Roberts and all those things? Where does that all sit? I mean, we, we get asked this a fair bit. I, I, yeah. we, we don't always comment on, on things that, that units that we weren't a part of kind mm. of got into, but I think it's, it's, it's fairly, the moral problem's fairly black and white. We, yeah. we had a um, bunch of soldiers that did a bunch of things that you can't do on the, in, in Pitt Street in Sydney. Yeah. But there's also no terrorists trying to kill, cut your head off in the That's right. Pitt yeah. Street in Sydney. And I think the big, the big issue, and it's been, it's been harped on, on on social media when people go crazy, but if you take um, young men who want or young boys, convert them to men to become soldiers, and then that is their life and you, you, you indoctrinate them with the values and, and then essentially you, you prov provide or you present them with what you have convinced is an evil opponent mm. and then they go overseas once, twice, three, and you realise that that evil is actually, actually exists and there is people doing evil things over there. Yeah. 
and then you keep sending them there over and over and over and over again. They're spending more time in that world than they are in this one. Yeah. And so we cannot then then have people who have never been from the Western bubble into this world judging them on their That's actions. Right. They just yeah. haven't been. Yeah. I don't think you find a soldier who, who's been to the Middle East that does not look at those guys and go, I would have done the same thing. Yeah. Um, and that, yes, there is some stuff that I wasn't there, so I don't understand course, the full yeah. situation, yeah. but I understand it far better than most of the people judging them yeah. back home. And all the, and, and, and the, the big problem I've got is the same people judging, saying they're all murderers and baby killers and whatever. They are the same people that the minute they are mildly threatened turned into the grossest fucking <laughs> mess, just spitting hate at everyone and they yeah. want the whole world to burn and die. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's confusing, but I mean, I, I understand kind of why they're getting that way. I just think the people in this Western bubble, they need more exposure to adversity. Well, I think it's, it's an interesting, an interesting idea, isn't it? Um, there's something, there's something interesting in what you've said there. Um, you know, if you, if you look at current, the current cultural context, um, you know, what you want to call it, wokeism or, um, Identity politics gone rabbit, or regressive leftism, or, or whatever, or whatever it is you, you might <laughs> want to call it. Yeah, you know, it's a kind of interesting situation because, really, for the first time in human history, we haven't sent whole generations of people off to be killed. So, really, in some ways, we live in the safest world, in the safest time in all of human history. And in some sense, there's a sensitization to the history of human barbarism and trauma. Like there's a sensitization that's happening to that. And I think that's what a lot of that stuff's about. I just think a lot of the ideas that are used to propagate it are pretty poorly thought through. You know, they're, not, they're not good ideas, but it is an interesting moment. And the claims towards human sensitivity and... Um, kindness and all those things are really important but as you said one of the ironies is that there's a kind of militancy to to the way those ideas are put forward and a, and a real lack of compassion and understanding to you know when we talk about service people i mean to the sacrifices and risks that those people have taken because you'd have to wonder how some of those same people might fare in, in that kind of adversity Mm, yeah, I mean, with the ones that, that haven't been, I, I I can make a ballpark judgment on how they'd fare. Not amazingly. <laughs> so, you, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into the fact that you're a, you're a philosopher as well. We can get to that in a minute, but I'd, I'd love to understand your, your kind of opinions on this one. It's like we are – utopia to me is unachievable in our lifetime anyway. Oh, well, it's what utopia means no place. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> <what> I mean. <laughs> but, I mean, that's what – so you speak to young people who, who have grown up now, like whatever generation they are, and it's like their, their take on it is to get to as close as we can to being good humans. Um, that's a positive thing that we are separating our understanding of war because we don't want to be around death. We don't want to be around violence. If we can not be exposed to it, yes, we are far more um, – uh, what's the word like vulnerable to to any symptoms you get from from that kind of trauma? Mm. But at the same time, they they look at it and they go, "Well, if everybody could just stop the violence, and the violence would go away." And in my mind, like the, the polar opposite to that is, um, you have hard times that create hard men, and 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 when we have some superpowers still that we're unsure, like if we become 
Uh, if we remove our exposure to this danger, threat, mm. and violence, and we have multi-generations of, of softer people, we are fucked. If, if, yeah, if China or, sure. or Russia looks at us like, then they're not becoming woke, they're becoming sheep, and that yeah, they're going to get eaten. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? And the, the question of what kind of society you wish to live in, and there are all sorts of interesting reverberations through these ideas. So, for example, you know, you're pointing out China and Russia and places like that, you know, which are on the move uh, politically and economically. It's a, it's a very interesting thing. China will not hesitate to call out the racism of Australia or America or any of those those places, right? Because they know that at home how disruptive it is. Yeah. But there is no, there are there are no non-Chinese people in the Australia in the Chinese Parliament. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's no, you know, there's no, there's no black people, you know, leading leading Russia. I mean, the diversity that exists in these countries um, are, are governed by kind of liberal sensibilities, and really, what we're talking about in some ways, you know, if we're talking about the the, you know, the philosophical question is you're talking about the tension between um, the values of a philosophical liberalism and the products of postmodernism. They're, they're really the kind of philosophical kind of points. Now, postmodernism arrives in the 1960s and starts to view the world in some pretty strange ways, but in particular starts to view the world as being constructed by hierarchies of power and that there is no real truth, there is no objective truth, there is really just just power, and that it's good to fight subjugation and power wherever you find it. And it's that ideology which is developed by people like Lyotard and Michel Foucault and, and people like that that really gets kind of activated into what we would call, you know, wokeism kind of today. Ironically, though, all the lib liberation that occurred really happened before this philosophy came about. So it's the liberal values of honouring diversity and difference that really allowed for the rise of feminism, the civil rights movement in the United States. All those things are really a product of uh, a, a liberal sensibility, a liberal um, philosophical sensibility, which really values difference and... Uh, civil discourse and an adherence to a set of kind of shared values around what a society should be like. Um, but this has always been a problem. Um, you know, it's a problem in democracy generally. Uh, Plato pointed to the problems of that democracies would nearly always uh, be destroyed by a tyrant. By the very nature of them, they, they create the kernels or the seeds by which their own destruction can be sowed. Was there uh, minorities destroyed democracy ultimately being part of something as diverse as that? I think I, was even, I think even Hitler might have said something like that, like yeah. to the point where you go, China doesn't do it. They have a 100-year plan. Yeah, you cannot right. do it. Yeah. No one's – even Japan. You go to Japan. Yeah. Like they're overtly, they're racist. Yeah. They yeah. like their immigration policy is still yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. You're like, okay. Well, um, what about mosques in that in in Japan? Like, you're not building one. 
Yeah. No yeah, one's see, blowing I, I up giant Japanese. I, I still don't have a problem with with that. So they're not. You go there from any country in the world. There might be some, but they that hospitably like you. You go there as a tourist, and, and Japanese people love you. Do they want you to live there forever? Do they want you to bring their culture in and, and blend the pool? Not so much. No, but there's a but there's tensions there as well because there's a great deal of benefit that's derived from uh, multicultural societies. So you know the United States. Australia, the wealth that has been achieved in those countries is largely achieved through the benefits of migration. And the rich cultural cultural tapestry of it is is incredibly valuable. I mean, you know, just think about, you know, what it's like living in Australia today and the cultural diversity here. It's it's a great thing. But that's that's a secondary point, I think, to the to the change in values. Yeah. So what, what I'm saying is that a liberal value system is something like you can believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe and we'll talk about it and we'll talk about it civilly and reasonably and in this discourse of civility, um, if we can come to an agreement, we that's great. If we can't, that's also okay. Um, you think about, uh, who was that? Pascal, I think, said, uh, I will not agree with everything you say, but I'll die for your right to say it. Mm. That's the that's the basis of a kind of liberal sensibility. Now there's some changes happening where that liberal sensibility is kind of being co-opted, where language itself has gone through these strange times. So uh, a lot of the time you hear this kind of sense that violence is not violence. Yeah? So if a... In a, in a certain context, it's okay to attack or hurt somebody because what they're saying is hurtful or hateful to certain people. So violence is not violence, but words are violence. You see, so there's this very strange kind of inversion that starts to happen where words and the perceived meaning of words becomes more, more threatening and more morally reprehensible than the righteous application of violence upon a person who said something you don't like. Is that because people can see the power of words and and when you talk about these great orators that that could, you know, um, or firebrands, I suppose, that could just really, you know, start a movement and, and is that why they're, they're sort of trying to get away no, from I, it? I, no, I think people people don't like having their feelings hurt. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that's what it is, is... You know, you have these kind of conversations with people and if if I disagree with this, then it's not just a disagreement, it's actually an attack on me as a person and my identity and, and it hurts me. Like I physically feel like it's hurt me somehow. It's like, it's just a conversation, mate. I think the identity piece is the, the, the kicker because you can have, and I've had plenty, um, as soon as, of identities. as soon as I have, no, 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 well, that too. But as soon as I have a couple of beers, I, I generally get into opinion-based, com, we'll call them conversations to keep it friendly. <laughs> with, with people that I've just met, right? Because if I'm opinionated and so are they, I, like, I love a good debate. And yeah. it's, always, it's always friendly. But I had one the other night um, with a young girl. She was an um, Indigenous lawyer and she does a lot of, of stuff on, uh, I, I don't know what exactly she specialises in, but we, I, I said some things and she got, and they weren't offensive to her at all and, and I was just saying, hey, th- these opinions have been raised and she got really upset about it and I was trying to, I was looking on it later and I'm like, how come when I have 
uh, a conversation with a, another veteran on, on a topic about, say, the Middle East, and, and I'm opposing everything they're saying. There's no – we don't really get emotionally um, triggered, for lack of a better word, I hate the word, but – and then I looked at it, I'm like, I said something that her identity was that's built right. on. And that's it, right. And there's nowhere to go for her then. And that's yeah. a learning curve for me because I love yeah. having these debates, but the last thing I want to do is get halfway well, through one and then well, piss someone off them. That's, that's right. And you raise this point around opinions, Adrian, and I think that's really important because – Everyone's got an opinion, but not all opinions are equal. That's an unpopular thing to say today, right? right? But not all opinions are equal. Having an opinion is a right, and every right is accompanied by a responsibility. So one of the questions is, what is the responsibility that you have in forming an opinion? Yeah. So you live in a democracy, you have the right to freedom of speech, you have the right to say what it is that you think, and that's an important right within any democratic society. And it's one that wars have been fought over. And God knows how many people have died for the right to say what they think and to speak their mind. But there's also the question of the responsibility that goes with that. And the responsibility is one where you have the responsibility to be an informed citizen. You have the responsibility to be educated and reflective and thoughtful in your conversation. You have the responsibility to engage in a civil discourse, which means to really listen to what's being said rather than just really trying to overwhelm the person with what it is that you think they should be thinking. You know, And, and so the, the question of dialogue there becomes really important and the nature of dialogue, there's a, there's a word in, um, in Greek sometimes is very useful here, which is pahizia, which is fearless and frank speech. You know, real dialogue has to have the capacity for us to have fearless and frank speech. Yet what we're doing in our society today is curtailing that because if you say the wrong thing in the wrong setting at the wrong time, it can mean your end of your career, end of your job. Social so, suicide. It, it can be, it can be. And, you know, once you get, once you are on that bandwagon, it's very difficult to get off. So the, the death of Parhizia is the death of democracy. It is the death of, of civil liberal discourse. And it's very important, I think, to hold that. Now, I just want to kind of juxtapose that. Much of what, you know, regressive leftism is concerned with, I would I would personally be, con I'm, I would say they're central concerns for me in my thinking and life as well. The issue of inequality, race, you know, violence, these are things I'm deeply interested in. It's just the answers that are being put forward, I think, are not very good. Mm. But the but the sense, and we've got to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Is what they're really saying is we should be concerned about our fellow human beings. I'm like, yeah, of course we should. I want to have love and care for diggers. I want to have love and care for refugees. Like I want to have that for everybody, and I want to engage in a kind of civil discourse about how we can find a better world to live in together. That's a bit utopian, but if if utopia is the far end of the spectrum, like aiming for it, getting there doesn't have to. It's not, it's, That's the idea. It's not yeah. the destination, but yeah. yeah, 
getting closer to it would be a good start. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but, I mean, your opinions, we talk about um, value systems and belief systems. They're the same as opinions and beliefs. They're the same thing, right? You can have a belief and it doesn't have to be a fact and it's not a fact. No. It's because of your particular lens of which you're looking through the world in. Yeah. And they can be challenged and people t are tying beliefs to who they are, not adjusting, not having this reflection. Yeah, exactly. Reflection's yeah. a key, isn't it? And if you think about another Greek word, you can tell I'm trained as a philosopher, but uh, there's this wonderful Greek word. It's called paideia. It's the Greek word for education, right? And, it, and it, its best translation is the maturation of one's soul through death, is that when you go into discourse, when you go into relationship, you're actually risking all of that. I'm risking that everything I thought was true could be undone because you might teach me something I didn't think was true. Many people are shocked to find out when they really start thinking about their life, they really start examining it, they're shocked to discover that their life is built on pudding. Sweet, fluffy nonsense without substance. And so really examining your life, really thinking about your life, reflecting on your life, requires you to also then take hold of yourself and claim the ability to change your life which is you know now tying back to what we're we're talking about in psychotherapy and psychology is that we have to choose the life we want to live not necessarily the life we've been given okay. is that why people uh you see uh, some speeches in universities where one particular side is doing the speech and they get shut down violently and they is it because they 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 just that they are so scared of what they've built their life on. That's right. That yeah. it's going to fall apart. They've got to shut it well, down. That's the point that Adrian was making before is about when it attacks your identity. Like, look, I often say to my students, you've got three choices. You can change your mind. You can try and change the world to match your mind. And you can kill yourself. They're the oh, three choices, yeah, yeah. right? Most people will try and change the world to match their mind. And this is how the world is. This is how I see it. This is what's going on. You're this, you're that. Yeah. I see Adrian, I see Anthony. You guys are this because that's what I want you and need you to be, right? They project onto the world. That's how most people engage the world. So you can try and get the world to do that. It never works. Yeah. The world has other ideas. You can kill yourself as we know many, many people do, tragically, every day. But there's a simpler option, which is changing your mind. But changing your mind is not something that's easy to do. Really changing your mind, like really changing how you perceive the world. When I say the mind, I'm talking about the, the perceptual system that builds up over the course of your life is hardwired to maintain itself because it gives you survival advantage. Right? You got here by seeing the world this way. Right? But at some point, you might need to adjust and change that view. That's why novelty is often the key factor in therapeutic change, giving people novel experiences, novelty of relationship. If we're talking about psychedelics, you know, what do psychedelics provide? A novel experience that disrupts perception that then has to be integrated into a new worldview. Yeah. So this, this, this sense of 
you know, not wanting, not wanting our sense of self, not wanting our identities, not wanting who we believe we are to be disrupted is very deep in human beings. Most people who come to psychotherapy do not come to psychotherapy to change. They come for the pain to stop. And they'll do just enough to get the pain to, to end. Stop. But radical change, to really change who you are. To, you know, one of my teachers said, reincarnation is real, you know. If you're lucky, you'll reincarnate two or three times in a lifetime. Mm. To really, to really sloth your skin, you know, to become a truly different human being. That's not an easy thing to do. It's, it, that, that's, a, that's a real challenge. And I, I mean, that's we're, we're working on this course modules at the moment, and it's it's heavily based on on restructuring identity, hmm. and that exactly what you're saying that is what's required for the military at the moment, yeah. and it's hard, but we need to find some kind of model that completely tra transforms that person into a new iteration of themselves. That's right. Yeah. And it's just not there. There is nothing there at the moment. That's why people are dragging this old military identity. Well, that's right. Through and life, for identity, 50 years. identities are narratives. Identities are stories. And they're, they're, they're defined by what we might call a me, not me loop, right? There's a loop that runs. This is me, that's not me. And what's not me is just as important as what is me. And so, you know, you're training to be a soldier. What are you not? Like, what are you not? Anymore. You're not a civvy. Not a civvy. You're not lazy. You're, you're not, not lazy. You're not a pussy. You're not. Yeah. Yep. You know, there's a whole series of things. So me, not me, right? So inverse of that, I'm discipline, discipline, yeah. hard, yeah. strong, tough. Da, 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 da. All right, that's all great, and that's the identity you need to do the job. But you're having thousands of traumatic exposures, right? thousands of traumatic exposures. Average civilian has four to five traumatic exposures in their lifetime. I think average soldier, I think it's 4,000. Police officers, same, I think. Oh, there's a massive- Yeah, they, police and fireys and massive, ambos. Yeah. Massive differences in exposures, right? So you, this identity is the identity that, that you need in order to do this thing. But then you get these traumatic exposures. And remember, trauma is not- no event is traumatic. Trauma is a response inside oneself to the event. And it's not a question of if people become traumatized, it's a question of when they become traumatized, right? Like if you just keep pushing people into these high stress situations continually, the nervous system just gives out. That, that's what it is, it's just the nervous system can't take it. What, are the, what does that person then do with that identity? Because the trauma, traumatic experiences they're having are going to undo much of that identity. I'm disciplined, I'm hard, I'm strong, I'm resilient, and I find myself in the fetal position at home crying in the cupboard. How do those things match up? They don't. They don't fit. Yeah, wow. And it's fucking painful, man. Like that's, that, that's difficult to deal with. So you have to find a new identity which allows you to work through all the things that have happened, change who you are, take the best of what you've learned and what you've become and become something new. Uh, you know, in the words of Nietzsche, you have to drink the fire from out of your own back. You, know, you have to reconstitute yourself from those things. So that, that plays into, 
I haven't seen the research because I, I don't know if it's there yet, but but I had to give a talk in front of a bunch of psychs on post-traumatic stress, and, and I'm a firm believer that I don't think that is the number one problem in the veteran community. I don't mm-hmm. think. Trauma, and I understand, like, I'm starting to get a better understanding of trauma, but I and I, I do see that, that a lot of my mates have trauma responses, but there's nothing linking to their military career that caused that. And, and I've, I've raised this kind of idea in the hope that someone way smarter than me would mm. kind of pick it up and run with it. In that when we transition out and we we don't have a transition process, there is yeah. no rite of passage. We're not yeah. rebuilding a new That's identity. Right. Yeah. We're sending veterans out into the out into society with with no stable understanding of who they are or what their values are. Then, like those three points that you just raised, I think were were, were fantastic. Most of the boys are walking around going, "I can't. My values no longer fit with the values of society." Yeah. Um, and they've got no identity really, and it's they've latched onto their past one, and they're like, "I can't change all of society. I don't really want to change my mindset because I still love the the, the identity I've got." Number three is the the, the final option, right? Yeah. And I, I looked at it, I'm like, is it possible that we're, we're, we're failing to transition people so they're walking around for the rest of their life? It could be the minute they get yeah. out until they're 99 with no stable identity, no structure and understanding in who they are, therefore no confidence, completely feeling isolated and lonely because mm-hmm. the rest of society has a completely different value set. Yeah. And then they are just, they're walking around with the door open to a traumatic response in everything they do because yeah. they're so isolated and lonely. Yeah, and look, I mean, it's important to... You know, when we talk about trauma, I think it's important to delineate. Yeah, you got post-traumatic stress disorder, acute stress disorder, and the the diagnostic criterion. But it's also important to see it as a spectrum. You know, what is what is trauma? Like, what is it really? I mean, it comes from the Greek word trauma, which means wound. It's and it, the way that I would normally categorize it is that it's an unexperienceable experience. It is something that just hasn't been metabolized properly. It hasn't been held through properly. And unfortunately, I think, look, you know, there's there's temperaments here as well. There's certain people, I mean, you guys can tell me, you know, what, what you think about this, but not every soldier is built equal, right? Like they're not, they're not all there for the same reasons. I've, I've seen, in my work, I've seen people who just needed to, get away from where they were i've seen people who needed the job i've seen people who were holding up a family tradition i've seen people who wanted a legal means for killing people and i've also seen this other subtype that doesn't really get talked about that much but is that people just built for it mm. they just that's what they are like they like whatever genetic throwback these guys are these are the warrior cast yeah, you know yeah, these people yeah. they just they don't get broken by it they don't it's what they're good for it's what they that's how they live but as a society we have no place for them and then there is no way of honoring them and that becomes i think its own form of problem because where do these people sit so i think you know if, if someone just needed to get out of where they were and they've gone and they've you know they've joined the military often just um training can be traumatizing you know, just the training process can can break people. And I've seen that plenty of times. You know, and if you get someone, you know, unfortunately, you know, obviously some people, you know, occasionally get killed in training and things like that. I've, you know, certainly worked with people that, you know, have not seen active combat, but they've they've been damaged in those in those settings. So it's a full spectrum, I think, and we have to have a view of the whole process and understand where 
where we sit as a culture and a society with violence, with trauma, and with warfare. You know, I think it's. Have you guys read that book, uh, War is a Racket? Have you guys read that? No. Yeah. It's, no, it's now great. I'm going to have a reading list like this. Yeah, mate. It's, a, it's a great book. Um, it's written by the most decorated US. Um, um, I think it was an officer, maybe. I, I can't remember. But uh, the most decorated ones usually are because they yeah, yeah. Write, write himself up. But. Yeah. <laughs> I think he might have been. I don't know if he was. I don't know. I don't know what he was. But I, I remember reading the book. It was quite good. And he's just talking about, you know, that, you know, the whole the whole process of war is also an economic and financial process. It's often, you know, it, it often is governed by decisions that are not the decisions that are that that people believe they're going to war for you know all those kind of things so there's oh, a, there's and this is someone, this is what changed for me um i read a book and it was a dry uh it was a recommended reading list for staff officers to go and i was like holy fuck and it was a novel like it was thick <laughs> and i was like jesus christ and it was heavy and 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 they were discussing in there they're like war as much as like young guys go, so he's like, no, we're going to go and save the children or we're saving yeah. the women. They're like, nope, war is an arm of politics. Yeah. That is all it is. Yeah. It's when politics, it's not when politics fail. It is another avenue of, yeah. that's all well, we do. And that's why it's really interesting with Putin at the moment, right? Because Putin's kind of broken an unwritten rule that's been established after World War Two is that you don't invade neighboring countries. Like you don't, you don't you don't you don't acquire land you don't do that like it's not okay to we do stopped that. doing that yeah yeah we, we kind of agreed th- that, that was we written st- up by the ones who got the most when it was yeah, still yeah. okay yeah <laughs> but it, but it was it's kind of this un uh, we're not we're going to stop doing that yeah. so war changed you know after world war 2 around that like the the nature of the conflicts i mean i guess um iraq invaded kuwait but i mean that didn't didn't go very well <laughs> for them there but uh yeah, like this movement with Putin is it's a real, like you get that sense there's a real political kind of decision making. There's a real instrumentality to what he's doing there. He's, and, you know, he invaded Crimea and had a look around. No one stopped me. I do this, I do that, I do this, I do that. And I, I think you're spot on. I think war is, a, is an arm of politics. And I think that's something that as a society we have to own up to as well. And I don't think that... Uh, this is the problem, and and I was sort of looking at the systems, and we we raised these problems when we were training uh, in Singleton. We're like, why don't we blow this course out to? And it is, it's it's about seeing behind the curtain, and yeah. obviously the dizzying heights of a, a platoon sergeant doesn't know the strategic way that we train armies and that. But yeah. um, you would go down there, and you would look at what we're trying to train these kids to do. So originally, uh, we go through the mass training of soldiers and people to go overseas. The skill sets weren't overly high. You had to give them a gun, teach them how to shoot a rifle, and do, you know follow orders. That's really there wasn't and, a whole lot. And two thirds of them wouldn't shoot people. Yep. Mm. Yep. Shoot high, shoot low. Yeah. Correct. Right. And so they they it's just about numbers. They're, they they yeah. and our training methodologies haven't really changed since like 1918, 1945. Give them a gun, give them that. Have you have you guys read um, Grossman's book on killing? On killing yeah. and on yeah. combat. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm glad we got one. You yeah. got a hundred books. <laughs> like, yeah, I read that one. <laughs> but they and they said and so we said, hey, let's let's get these kids. 
mm. and let's teach and now we've got to teach them combat shooting we've got to teach them room co we've got to teach them all these things and now before they leave they've got to do 84s mag 58s nine mils they're like yeah. you're shoving all this stuff in these kids heads but we're not at any point grabbing them so you can't psychoanalyze a kid at, at you go and do your army psych course psychs like hey you, when you stand on a high building, do you feel like jumping off? And you're like, nah, like tick, off you go, mate. Good yeah, on you. You're right. <laughs> yeah, you, you join the army, not a problem. And then we get this problem of why you're joining the army yeah. uh, and does that align with your value systems? And will that kid or person ever have the tools, techniques, and training to deal with that situation? Well, that's right. And, and But you know what's interesting about that is perhaps what decides that is actually happen way before you get to that point. So one of the most ameliorating factors for the development of stress disorders is healthy attachment. So the first two years of life, it's in those first two years of life that the person begins to form by their relationship with their primary caregivers. And it's in those attachment relationships that the regulatory skills... the, the Self-soothing and stuff like that? Yeah, that's where all that develops, right? Now, if you look at somewhere like the US, you know, where did they used to pull their soldiery from? You know, it was largely middle class. That's where they, you know, that's where they previously pulled it from. And in recent decades, it's all coming lower from socioeconomic. lower socioeconomics. Work, the American military is a work for the Dole program. Yeah, yeah, right? So you get broken families, poor attachment, and as a result, you give them traumatic exposure yeah, or regulatory capacities. I mean, I think that's a natural side effect is you're going to get a, ra a rapid increase in the rates of stress disorder because it's important to understand that it's really about resources, right? Like the traumatic response, you know, I, I ask these questions all the time. It's like, so women are twice as likely to develop PTSD as, as men, yet men are exposed to a lot more violence just in civilian life, right? This is just, these are just civilian statistics. Why? Why? Why is that? Well, it's about resources. In order to, when you become traumatized, you're talking about a collapse of the defensive capabilities of the person, right? Their, their cognition breaks down. Their fight and flight response, that stops working properly. Yeah. They now kind of freeze up. Yeah. And then they get into this deep state of paralysis, right? And that's really about the resources. If you've got the capacity to fight and flight, you don't need to collapse down into these lower regions, which is where the trauma happens. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have the resources to do it, you're more likely to end up there. And so there's something very interesting about the resources that people have to cope, the you know, endogenous resources that develop through attachment and those things but then the resources we teach people to cope like what are the actual strategies and you know what did you guys learn how did you what was the did you get a lesson on how to cope with with terrible shit no i don't think Pre there was was there one lesson there was there was, there was 45 minutes we had of, of if, if bad shit happens overseas here's a like gave us like a, a, a animated box breathing technique and they're like just breathe slowly. Yeah. That'll solve it. So, so what they yeah. roll a cigarette or do something, yeah. fine motor yeah. skills. Yeah. So, what they're trying to do is uh, it's just a really basic regulatory skill, right? Like, obviously, that's not going to solve the problem. But, you know, these resources and really developing inner resources in the person is, is really a, an important characteristic. When we're doing trauma treatment, 
you know, we've nearly always used what we call a multiphasic treatment model. The first phase will always be some version of safety, stabilization, and resources before you approach any of the difficult experiences. Then you do controlled uncovering of experience or controlled uncovering of memory, memory processing, and then the last stage is some version of of narrative integration, so integrating those experiences into who you are. And there's lots of different versions of this. There's three phase, five phase, whatever, but they're the general that's the general quality of it. So we've but the problem all right, so here's the problem we've got. Well adapted, high socioeconomic educated people don't join the military. That's right. And I, I, I've the got to believe- the, the boys that are broken are the, make the best soldiers because they adapt. Oh, they do. They do, absolutely. And I, I mean, this is the, the, the conspiracy mind in me is like, someone out there knows that. They, they, they bring psychs in, a, I don't know how many years ago, to develop recruitment campaigns. And they're like, yeah. as any marketing does, it's like, what's the demographic you're going after? Yeah. And they may have said, hey, let's go for our highest performing, well-educated. And the psych's like- you got fucking no chance of getting them to join the military. Yeah. So then the, the demographic becomes low socioeconomic, poorly adjusted, poorly adapted um, people from broken homes. They, they love the recruitment. You hit a target and then, then the military's like, well, we've got it. But yeah. then we realise that if we have, I believe we have, listening to you, we understand that a lot of the people from the military who have trauma issues probably started when they were kids. No one's allowed to put that into doctrine because yeah. that kills recruitment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a big problem, I think, and I think you're spot on. And I, I guess that question there, Anthony, is why do they make good soldiers? These lads you're talking about. It's a, it's a um, so we we've spoke about this a couple of times, and and uh, everyone knows. Like I came from uh, council housing and roughest of the rough. So yeah. I'm there. You go. There's a little bit of a so yell at me. I don't give a fuck. Um, no, it's that belonging and want to be part gonna, of something. I was going to say, be a part of a family, right? Be yep. a part of a unit, a team. Like uh -huh. the sense of belonging, often the sense of belonging you get in those situations. You guys heard of trauma bonding before? You heard of that Yes, term? or uh, you can create relationships through shared suffering. Is that something like that? Yeah, trauma bonding, right? It's the most powerful form of relational bonding, right? It's stronger than attachment bonding between a mother and a child. You know, if you think about, um, you know, the kind of bonding that sometimes happens between hostages and, um, you know, the people who are holding them hostage, right? That kind of, that kind of bonding, yeah, yeah, kind of quality. Is that the, the traumatic experience is so strong that in order to survive, you have to come together. You got to come together, right? It's trauma bonding. You know, all those action movies where, you know, the action star, you know, gets with some woman who he couldn't stand at the start but after they go through this traumatic experience they're in love yeah right? yep. yeah and then after the experience of course it all goes away but in the sequel they're yeah. always divorced yeah that's right <laughs> that's right this is a trauma bonding right this kind of process by which people become bonded in trauma it happens in family violence yeah so you can be the victim can be bonded to the perpetrator but equally you know going through the things that you guys have to go through in war like it creates this intense bond. And, it, you know, the old saying, you know, um, blood is thicker than water. You know, it's often mis misapprehended. People think, do you guys know that, that expression? That right? Yeah, I know the expression. Right expression yeah. Yeah. yeah, so what it means is people who have spilled and shared blood are closer than people who have shared waters. Yeah. 
Yeah, normally people deliver it like family. It's the other like way around. Related it's the it's, other way around. Yeah, yeah. Blood is thicker than water. Yeah. Right? Blood is thicker than water. People who have shared blood, spilled blood, are closer than those people who have shared waters. They yeah. come yeah. out of the same mum. Gotcha. Right? So that's, shared water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, shared waters. Yeah. So. So that's where that expression comes from. So there's a lot of tightness, man. Like those, and it's very hard, I think, for civilians also to understand that degree of com- camaraderie, that degree of closeness, because often they don't even have that with their fa- with their families, let alone absolutely, you know, yeah. You know, a friend. Like most people's friends are not are not at the same level of intimacy and connection that that people have served together are going to have have experiences of. And, I, and that's, that's I, again, part of what I believe the problem is with a lot of veterans when you leave. It's like you joined searching for tribe and belonging. Yeah. yeah. You went through some shit together. Yeah. The military taught you that, well, especially in, in combat corps, that you're stronger together and you're useless by yourself. So, yeah. so they, they yeah. indoctrinate you yeah. with the team is, is, is stronger than the combination of all the parts put together. And then you leave and you're completely disconnected. Yeah. And then you're fucked. Like, and I, I don't think... Military defense and defense psychs are putting enough focus on that need to be associated with your tribe, yeah. especially for dudes. I'm yeah. not, I can't speak for women because I don't yeah. know how, how their brains work, but disconnection from from that tribal union is, I believe, the biggest problem that veterans face when we yeah. leave. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's a huge, a hugely important bit. I mean, that's why coming here, something here like this is real cool, though, right? I'm like, you got you got like a place, and you got a gym, and you got lads working out in the gym, and it's like. These are the kinds of hubs that are probably going to be the thing that, well, this that, is, that this begins is to resolve that. Government started to realise we need veteran centres. I mean, they're yeah. mimicking the American model and they're making them all like VA hospitals. Yeah. I'm like, we don't need more hospitals in Australia. We, well, we might. I don't know. But we need spots like this. And this yeah. is what the RSL was built for. It's yeah. like, let's provide a communal location where back in the day, World War One and Two, the old boys didn't want to come and go to the gym. They wanted to come and sink, piss and tell stories. <laughs> Whereas now, it's like podcast studio, gyms, we've got yeah. physios. Like, this yeah. is what I think is, is Yeah, no, I think I think you need. guys are onto something. I think it's, you know, I, I said hats off to you guys. That's why, I, you know, when I met up with you, I was like, if you guys need anything, let me know. I'm, I'm you know, I'm in. Like, I, mm. I think this is so important. So, so we get these real fucked up individuals. They go overseas. We haven't trained them properly, or we have, and and they probably shouldn't have joined the army, and they have. Yeah. And then we we they get back, and they're stuck in this fucking brain loop, hmm. and they're going over stuff, and they get on the piss, yeah. and they keep and, going over and, and, and over and, and over. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so we how do we break that looped thought cycle pattern of life we instill these things but is this where psychedelics come in to break the connection well, that's what, yeah i mean that, that's one option right that's one option is that um i think psychedelics are an obvious treatment uh that shows good efficacy now maps um third phase trial results came out last year incredible results uh, incredible results uh you know, we're, you know, you're looking at after the initial treatment period, 37% of the population that were studied uh, had uh, completely recovered. They were non-symptomatic. 67 or 68% no longer met diagnostic criteria and nearly 90% showed significant life increase and they're expecting those numbers to drift upwards over time. So incredibly hopeful can't get too excited as seeing it as a panacea right it's not like it's going to fix everything 
You know, it's it's going to be particularly good for, I think, treating index combat trauma. I think it's going to be particularly good for that. Um, but, you know, it's not necessarily going to resolve lifelong pain and struggle and difficulty. I, I don't think that's, that's necessarily what it's going to do. But it's incredibly hopeful. And, um, you know, my work with my medicine and, and those things has really been about you know, just wanting to see a change. I, I think it's reprehensible, personally, that we know that these these things are incredibly safe when used clinically, like incredibly safe. Like uh, most other medicines are not as safe as these substances when they're used in a clinical setting. And the potential for efficacy is so high. I think it's criminal that we're, we're not using them and supporting and helping people with them because people are killing themselves. Every day people Literally. are dying. And it's like we're worried that it's not safe enough. I'm like... The alternative is a little bit more dangerous. Yeah, like, like if you don't do something, people are dying. But the political will or whatever it is, I don't know uh, exactly how it is. And this is why my medicine so, um, you know, as a, as a, you know, I guess a, a, an agency of change has been so important in Australia to, you know, Tanya and Peter's work, um, you know, to try and stir things up to get to get this change happening. It's really kind of galvanised a lot of momentum. But, you know, I'd really love to see... They're saying that MDMA will be legalised in the US for treatment use um, end of next year. You know, I, I just hope that Australia gets on to that as quickly as they can. Um, you know... Veterans need it. Sexual assault survivors need it. Uh, in the you know the highest numbers of um, PTSD sufferers are sexual assault survivors, and then normally it's veterans. You know, kind of coming down the list or first responders. Those people need this stuff, you know, because the other treatments are not working as effectively as 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 they need to to save people's lives. It's like it's not that it's not that look it's not that fucking hard. No, like, it's just like, like people are killing themselves. Or you can give them a medicine that's not going to hurt them and is likely to help them. I feel like that's a pretty straightforward proposition. So what are the drugs under that umbrella? And and I know that different agents have different ways, like how they yeah. affect, but how do they do this? Yeah, well, they, they work differently. So the, the two main medicines that are used in the research are MDMA um, and the other that's researched is psilocybin. Now, there's a whole bunch of others, though. I mean, there's uh, not so much in the clinical space, but things like ayahuasca are very popular in veteran communities. There's a, there's a whole bunch of other, um, you know, what's sometimes referred to as master plant teacher kind of medicines. There's a whole bunch of those, classically LSD as well. So there's a whole bunch of, of these. But if we just focus on the things that have been really researched heavily in the last decade, MDMA, you know, you know, obviously, it's the active, supposedly the active ingredient in ecstasy when people taking that as a street drug. But MDMA has this really powerful effect. What it does is it downregulates the fear centers of the brain, and it upregulates the relational connective centers of the brain. So it moves you into relationship, into being supported and held, and at the same time, so it allows you to approach experiences that were unexperienceable because they were too hard or too scary. So it allows you to do that. Psilocybin, which is the active um, ingredient in magic mushrooms, um, 
works differently. It's, a, it's a, obviously a different kind of process. What that's doing is it's really creating a profound disruption to the network of the brain itself. So this, you guys probably heard of the default mode network. It's the kind of basic perceptual lens. I was talking about changing your mind, right? That's, that's this basic perceptual kind of resting position that the mind holds. This, this medicine disrupts that. It disrupts it and in disrupting it, it can allow all sorts of experiences. A lot of people who take psilocybin, about 80% of them will have some kind of mystical or transcendent experience at a, at a large therapeutic dose, 25 milligrams. But there's also a lot of personal work that can occur. Yeah, And they're now starting to compare MDMA and psilocybin because they were like psilocybin's for depression, um, MDMA's for trauma. But of course, that's that's starting to be questioned now. It's like, well, why? What are they doing? What are these medic? What are these medicines doing? Are there ways of separating them, blending them, using them? And you know, they have profound effects. You know, they have profound clinical effects for people. And um, you know, my view is that psychedelics are an important therapeutic tool. I my my personal approach is that I don't. I don't have a evangelical stance on them, right? Like some people involved in the area, they just think if you just put some psilocybin in the water, the world would be a better mm. place, right? We all have peace and love. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't feel that way. I'm I'm almost exclusively concerned with clinical use. I have clinically for many years treated the negative effects of uh, psychedelic abuse, and I'll, I'll highlight yeah, that. Yeah, can we abuse, get into it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, abuse, you know, is, you know, use and abuse always need to be separated. Um, clinical use is not the same as recreational abuse, and I think these medicines can be really dangerous when they're abused, um, but certainly not as dangerous as alcohol. Just to just, just 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 to frame that up, you yeah. know, when I say dangerous, it's you know, <laughs> it's a question of in relation to what. Um, so I'm I really a strong advocate for their clinical use. Um, I think organising and developing one's mind is. A essential responsibility of every human being. There's lots of ways of doing it. Uh, psychedelics are often a gateway to that path. They're often a path to go, ah, oh, there's more. Now, meditation is probably a more stable and reliable um, path over time, you know, longevity, but it, it's very hard to do. And we live in a society where people want things quickly. And a lot of people don't have the patience to spend five years on a cushion to get the same experience they could get simply by, by taking a substance. So I feel like all of those things have their place and understanding that alteration of human consciousness is a basic feature of the human mind. It's, I would go as far to say is that it's probably also a human right to be able to change your mind and to, to use um, things to support that occurring. Uh, whether that be responsible use of medicines or other technologies and experiences. I think those are really important features because it's only those things which give us the novelty that allows us to really change our mind. And it's really novelty that does that, the novel experience. I thought the world was like this. I had this experience. It's not like that. I have to have to adjust i've got to integrate those experiences together that makes a lot of sense because i mean I, I i as i discussed when i was i went to that mind medicine event um 
I, I have experimented with a bunch of different psychedelics uh, myself, more often than not, very rarely recreationally. I mean, I know yeah. you'd call it recreationally because I didn't have a clinician there, but it was I was doing it for a purpose. And mm-hmm. that's yeah. I think that's for me when you're talking about the, the 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 use cases for MDMA versus psilocybin. I'm like, for me, it's like whatever the intention is that I'm going in with. Sure. Um, it's very similar, whether it's um, cannabis, mushrooms, or, or LSD. In the past, like going into it was, was, was or even even DMT. Yeah. Um. Like, what am I trying to get out of this, and what questions am I asking? Because that that is exactly what it was for me. It wasn't. I had some dramas, like with a lot of anxiety issues, and 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 I guess what put me onto it. I know as a kid, smoked pot a couple of times. I hated it. it made me mm. super anxious, super paranoid. Mm. Um. Never wanted to go near it. And then going through the military, never did recreational drugs. Um. And and then. Obviously, Rogan's podcast was was a big thing over the last decade, kind of opening people's mind, the, yeah. the uses behind some of this. And when he started talking about cannabis, for example, how he would meditate, smoke a joint, and really try and induce yeah. some anxiety that helped him process it. And I started doing the same, and, and uh, fairly frequently um, over the last few years, well, different stages for different different things, but, but going in with an intention to go, I'm going to – Try and induce social anxiety, and it fucking it's it's hard to process when you yeah. when you're yeah. high. Um, but then for weeks after it, I had no social anxiety. Yeah. And then well, the first time I, I did mushrooms, same thing. Um, but then what I realised, especially with 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 psilocybin and, and then DMT, it was like if I had a trauma issue, just it's not like a, an antidepressant. You eat it and then your depression goes away from it. No. It wasn't just going to solve it. Like, no, and, and that to, was never the intent. You got to go through it. Yeah, and that's, and that's what, when you said then, like, it, it helped you organize your thoughts. And what that's what it did for me on any of these things. It, it helped me process an idea, um, organize thoughts, and then for me, especially with meditation, helped me strengthen and fortify my identity. Yeah, and that's all. When I look back at it now, that's all yeah. it was. For weeks after, I had this really strong, unbreakable identity. Yeah, and nothing could nothing could hurt me. Well, I mean, there's a few things there. The role of integration is really important clinically. I would say integration is more important than the dose session in some some ways. The great challenge with psychedelics is the tension between states and stages, or states and traits. I want to come back to the cannabis thing though. That was really interesting. But um, states are transient. That is, they don't last. Traits or stages, depending on what language you want to use, are stabilized states, right? Each state contains a resource, right? State one, resource one. State two, resource two. You take a recipe to move you from state one to state two in order to get the resources in state two because you didn't have that resource before, right? Problem is you come back to state one and the resource is gone. The real challenge is how do I stabilize the resources of state two in the state that I come back to? And that's where therapeutic integration is really important. It's what um, my colleague uh, Nigel Denning and I have done a lot of work on this over the last kind of 10 years, I'd say, looking at the role of what we call the metacognitive view. And so what these medicines often do is give you a different view. And you can mark and support the metacognitive view in the integration process so it stabilizes over time. The longer a state is maintained for, the more likely it is it will stabilize. Right. So just stay stoned forever, you reckon? No, 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 exactly not that though, right? So you have to take the experience which is generated bottom up 
And then what you have to do is work top down to keep the experience alive, right? So, you know, imagine you're taking psilocybin and you're like, you can, you know, you, you can experience the whole universe, right? You can see all things, you feel everything, the trees are alive, the ground's alive, the sky's alive, everything's got this kind of quality to it. How do you feel in that moment? How do you see the world, right? How do you see the world? How do you see other people? You don't hate anyone. You don't, you know, everything's just this part of this unified field. Uh, violence to the other would be violence to self in this setting. So it makes you kind of calmer and kinder and all those things, right? If you can hold that experience, if you can mark that in your body so it stays alive and you, and, you know, you get this five day period of neurogenesis where the brain is changing after psilocybin, for example. If we can mark that and hold that period alive, we can stabilize those changes so that then what happened in the experience, the view that you achieved in the experience doesn't just fade. And I'm sure you, you, know, you guys can kind of think about your own experiences where you had this profound experience mm. and I'm never going to forget this and this is, you know, this is going to be with me forever and then six months later it's kind of, what was that thing again? Mm. Where did that go? So clinically... The integration process is essential. And I would say in underground use, so separating out what you're describing, you know, I, I wouldn't call what you were describing as recreation, I would call it underground therapeutic use. Often the thera the dose experience is often held quite well. It's often a lot of skill. Um, there's often a lot of, you know, entheogenic kind of um ceremony and ritual that's brought to it from different cultures and positions it really holds people quite well not always i mean there's lots of problems in that space as well because it's unregulated but there's lots of good people doing that work but i would say that the integration piece is often not done very well and so you know um, i know that nigel and myself have done a lot of work you know in the integration space dealing with people who've had negative experience, have been damaged, and also positively have wanted to stabilise the work that they've done. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, would, that would absolutely make sense for me. Like, I, I do admit there is no stabilisation, especially with, with, with mushrooms or, or DMT, and that yeah. would be something now that I know that I would yeah. go looking for. Yeah, yeah, super important. I, I would say it's the most important bit. Mm. The most important bit. If, if it's going to be really meaningful, yeah. if it's going to really last. Otherwise... Unfortunately, what you can you know, psychedelics are not behave uh, are not chemically addictive, but they can be behaviourally addictive. Yeah, that's yeah. what I found with 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 weed. Was like I, I understand there's no chemical addiction, but but habitually it started to become a switch off point. Like yeah. if I if I was ADD minded for a week yeah. and I couldn't yeah. can't switch off, it's like yeah. oh I know how to do switch that off real quick. Mm. And I'm like that that became a, a, a habit. It was like need to switch off. You can now work. 12 hour days and go straight to sleep. Yeah. And then, and then I'm like, it's it's not healthy. Well, it's interesting with the with the weed stuff, right? Um, the cannabis it's like I think cannabis is this real into this really interesting space, right? Because it's legal in Australia. Um, there's a number of really good cannabis doctors um, that I know. Um, Jamie Rickard in uh, New South Wales and James Stewart in Victoria. James uh, Myself and Nigel are looking at putting it, putting some work together, uh, looking at cannabis-based psychotherapy. So you can actually induce um, 
psychedelic-like experiences with some mixtures of cannabis, but they're much shorter, so you know, two-hour treatments. And I think that's that's really beneficial. But I think the CBD and THC CBD blends can be a really useful augmentation in people suffering from trauma. I think that can be a really, really useful. I would say what I've seen with that is that those medicines done at really low doses in a really manageable way, they just create this slow reshaping of the nervous system, which can be really beneficial. But that's not how most people, you know, use cannabis. No, cannabis <laughs> and, mu- and mushrooms, so, yeah. I mean, recreationally, it is yeah. macro dose to the yeah. point where yeah. um, Green oh, there's, there's a dude on social media talking about, like, oh, well, it's mean, but he goes, oh, I just ate something like 5,000 grams of, of cannabis. And, and the dude's response was, mate, go outside, hold onto the grass. Oh, Grab hold of the grass and hang yeah. onto the world with everything you got. Yeah, because yeah. there's no way out. Yeah. You're in this until it yeah, stops. Until it's over. Yeah. And I think that's. I mean, that that is part of the macro dose kind of journey. Is like I am doing it to to push, and you have to be comfortable. Um, you're not going to want to do this all the time. I wouldn't recommend doing anything I do for the people listening to this, but um, that has been a goal at some stages. Like a couple of years ago, I know I wanted to just push as hard as I could mm. to go see where it goes because you know that whatever happens in there. Well, you induce anxiety. You're going to have to navigate your way out and you'll be a better person for it. For those listening at home. <laughs> Give them the actual recommendation. If, if you are going to do this, do it in slow, gentle increments that allow you to be safe. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, this kind of – this. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like, in some ways, there's a kind of attitudinal hangover here as well. I mean, I've seen this a lot in soldiers and treating them. You know, I can't tell you how many times, you know, you know, soldier will, comes in for their session and they're like, all right, I'm going to fucking smash this trauma today. Let's fucking, <laughs> let's fucking get after this fucker. Come on, I'm going to smash this cunt. I'm going to fight. It's like, it's like, yeah, no, we're not going to do any of that. Because it's a repetition compulsion. It's like the hardness is actually part of the repetition. So one of the things is, you know, we're talking about the identities is finding ways of being gentler but also not being weak, you know, see? So there's this kind of tension often, I think, around vulnerability being weakness. And I think that's problematic because what we need to do is find a way of vulnerability being kind of held as a kind of strength. Like, And there is a kind of vulnerability which is very profoundly strong. It's a still and dignified kind of, not talking about, you know, collapsing into, you know, a pool of your own tears and snot. I mean, the ability to just be with what's there without collapsing in that way is something that we really need to cultivate for people. And I I think that's something that I've seen a lot in soldiers in therapy is one of the things, one of those identity shifts is that actually me connecting to my vulnerability is not me being weak. Yeah, like they're they're not exactly the same thing. And... The importance of that, the importance of learning to be with what's there and to be honest with what's there without having to kind of squash it down is important and at the same time finding the strength to stand up and to move forward and to embrace that, that spirit of I can-ness that, that's really at the centre of kind of human life. Because you're quite a, uh, I mean, if people are listening to this and not, uh, watching it, you're quite a dichotomy. You are a six foot, what, six, seven, seven yeah. 
buck 30 buck 35 (laughs) (laughs) probably should be buck 25 (laughs) multiple black belts um you're a and i'm going to fuck up all of your qualifications like philosophy psychology doctorate like Every, that is completely opposite. You would look, if people are listening to you, they would be like, oh, he's probably got a cardigan on and <laughs> some glasses if he's a philosophy professor. And, yeah, sure. And you're not. And no. and talking about we get the hardness kind of right because that's easy to train and mm. quickly in the army, yeah. you know, physicality and then into toughness. But we don't quite, we get mentally tough in a physical aspect, like carry this pack for 30K, yeah. it's going to hurt yeah. and you're going to do it. Yeah. But we don't develop, we always talk about this and, and having you on would be great. Um, the Eastern versus Western philosophies of yeah. of having that spiritual side to your warriors that That's can right. actually come yeah. in and out. We don't have that in Western society. No, no, we don't. We don't. And, uh, you, know, a, you know, that expression, I'm sure you guys have heard it, you know, it's better to be a warrior in the garden than to be a gardener in war, right? And this this idea of how does one come back to the garden and appreciate it and be a part of it, but still always be what it is that you are, you know, because you can't undo that. And so, you know, the the notion of fighting, you know, the agone, the struggle, it breeds something in us. And there is something about human fierceness and i think it's a particularly an issue in contemporary society with toxic masculinity and all those things it seems like that that fierceness that 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 quality of the agon is kind of not allowed somehow it's it's negative or it's it's terrible but it's really not you know obviously if it's misused it's not but we're not talking about it being misused we're talking about the way it builds a sense of purpose and a sense of identity um you know in kyokushin karate you know they use that term us you know which is a plea to one's soul to continue when pushed yeah this this quality of in the hardship i find myself you know you on you are the stone on which i sharpen my blade these are the kind of ideas that come up in kind of martial arts a lot and you can't pretend to do that and obviously you can pretend to do that i mean there's a lot of mick martial arts out there right like there's you know a lot of pretend stuff but when you go to kind of really hard arts you go to boxing muay thai um kyokushin mma even judo and wrestling you know those are kind of real live resistant arts you know they, they they forge something in people people who actually undergo it in a serious way you know you spend your time doing that it, it changes you you know and it, and it, as a competitor you know if you you know you know it's, it's a special kind of experience you know getting into a cage with a you know 100 plus kilo person that's been training for the last 8 months to kill you you know <laughs> like it's yep. like you you have to find something in yourself and you know something about yourself in that. And I think that's maybe the, the part that's often missing in our society is you don't actually know until you know. I'm sure you guys can probably talk to that in your own experience with deployment. It's like when stuff actually happens, that's when you find out. You can train all you like. but Yeah, and even that side of it, when you talk about rugby and, and team sports, you go, 
you can go missing on a rugby field. Yeah. You know, you're a bit of a jack cunt if you do, but you can go missing and, yeah. and maybe not. Yeah. But you go missing in a ring, you're the one that's going to suffer. You pay the cost. Right. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and you would know, like, you're like, I'm definitely not ready. Or whatever, that the battles that are going through your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I always used to say, like, I used to fight a bit, you know, and I would say um, I fought a lot as an amateur. I was quite successful as an amateur. At, you know, fought a little bit as a pro here and in Japan and stuff. And I would say I was... You know, uh, my coach, um, Richard Walsh, shout out, Urban Fight in Queensland. You know, you guys, Nathan, go Nathan, Nathan Corbett. Do you know Nathan Corbett? Carnage Corbett? Oh, yeah. Uh, rings a bell, yeah, no. as, anyway, the, the, Richie trained him as well. And, you know, Richie describes me as the laziest fighter he's ever met. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't really like exercise. I just like fighting, right? I don't really, I don't really, you know, all the running and all these things, you know, that, um, I know for myself, I used to feel real good when I was winning. <laughs> but when I started losing, I'd be like, what am I doing here? I've got all these university degrees and getting punched in the head. This is shit. <laughs> um, and it's amazing how in those hard moments, you can persuade yourself out of the fight. You know? Absolutely. Like, and really, that's what that, it's that, that, that micro moment where you decide, do I roll over and give up here or do I just push that little bit? And I think it's often really interesting in those settings is if you just are not complicit with the situation, if you resist it, even just a little bit, it might feel impossible, but just a little bit of resistance often is enough to turn the tide because the other guy's giving it everything he's got and you just go one point above it and things shift. And yeah, I, I, I really think that that part of the human psyche, um, that part of uh, of us, uh, and particularly of men, really needs to be cultivated. You know, I train a lot of you know train a lot of professional MMA fighters and things like that over over the years, and you know, they are not the stereotypes that people think about. Of some thug out there wanting to beat, they're all good kids working hard, training hard, and like it's meaningful for them. And people are like, oh, they shouldn't do it. I'm like, well, I agree, right? I, I understand personally, but also psychologically and neurobiologically what's happening to them, right? Like I I can't tell you how, you know, I'm just watching people's get hit in the head and I'm, I, I'm like, oh my God, because I know the science of what's happening to them each time they get hit, right? The neuronal shearing, all that stuff. But I also will say to those people who think they shouldn't do it, if you've got to fight, you've got to fight. Mm. You, you, like you can't, like it's something they need to do. So let's create a safe container for them. Let's support them to work it through. And when it's worked through, let them move on to something else. Like let it be what it needs to be for them. And, you know, that's certainly been my attitude over the years. And, yeah, so, I, you know, I, I believe in the value of the agon, of the struggle of combat. I believe that it's it's good for people, you know, reference being trained as a philosopher, but, you know, Theodosius, um, a historian of the Peloponnesian Wars, said a society that separates its warriors from its scholars has its fighting done by fools and its thinking done by cowards. Mm. And that's where we are. Look, I, my, so I've got a question that will cause a lot of people to hate me but it, I don't think our audience is too worried I, I I mean we're looking a lot like ancient Rome now and they that was the 
Yeah. Good, perfect separation where you had a warrior kind of element to society and then you had the senators and, and they were generally beta males or, or, yeah. or less physically statured um, men. And I'll, I'll butcher the shit out of it, but there is a fairly recent kind of rat study where they showed where they, where they gave a society of rats all the food, um, all, all the sex, and they, they wanted for nothing. Yeah. And the population just exploded really quickly yeah. as, as it does with rats. And eventually the population was so big because there was no need to fight for food and mates, um, the, the number of alphas kind of hit a, a point where there was no need hierarchically mm. for any more alphas in this society. So all of the rest of the males that were, were being born became betas and eventually – they started to use manipulative psychological techniques to sure. bring women to them, to steal yeah. food yeah. because they didn't have the the stature within that. So is that where we are in the well, Western world now? We've got too many study? babies. That was rat, Rat-topia or Rat- Oh, no, Rat Park was the, the cocaine study, but this <laughs> no. I don't know what this one was called. Well, there's a few things to say about that. First of all, the notion of alpha and betas in Homo sapiens is untrue, first of all, right? So there's no such thing as alpha and betas in Homo sapiens, right? that doesn't exist um, because of the variety of settings, right? You can have, you know, you can have a banker um, in a boardroom meeting with the world heavyweight boxing champion and in that encounter, like the banker is the alpha, mm. right? You know, this is the most dangerous man on the world, but this is, you know, so, so you have to kind of, soften some of the expectation. I know that that's a good shorthand for what we're really talking about is um, the role of kind of physical dominance, physical prowess, physical strength, and the characteristics of kind of what we might call traditional masculinity. Mm. Yeah, I think those things are changing. Um, some of that for the good and some of that for the bad. You know, I mean, we need to we need to hold the line there and not romanticize those the negative features of it, you know, but at the same time be able to pick out what is really good about it. What are the, you know, what are the things that have really allowed this stuff to, you know, what, are, what has it done for us yeah, as a, as a people and as a, as a species? And it's done a lot. It's also done some harm and I think it's important not to minimise that. There are problems with that if, if that's the dominant and only discourse available to you. What we need is something more balanced. You know, we need a we need a series of virtues to live by. But my view is that strength and capability uh, are important. I mean, I, I personally, you know, and this is just completely personally anecdotal revelation of my own psychology. I don't understand what it's like for a man who's untrained to be in the world. I just, I actually don't. I, I can't grasp it. I, you know, you talk about this dichotomy for me and all those things. I grew up really hard, like super hard. And, you know, we we're poor and life was difficult and there's lots of violence around. So I'm like, I'm going to get hard and I'm going to get smart. So all these things that people are like, oh, you've done all, you've done all these achievements, they're just psychological compensations for survival, right? This is how I survived. Yeah. And, the the you know the qualities of those things the 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 value of that strength i think is really undervalued by a lot of people today until they need it yeah and that, that that's the that's the reality is like at some point life will push you to your knees yeah and 
as the saying goes, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. Yeah, and that's that's the so, gardener in a war kind of that's right. scenario all over again. And I, I look at too, like I, I've been knocked out too many times playing footy and I was around too many bangs. Mm-hmm. I am concerned that my brain, the shelf life has been reduced a little. Yeah. Um, and I talked to the boys, we've got this veteran kind of charity boxing thing coming up and I'm like, I, I think I'm going to have to get back in to have a crack, even though I'm nervous about Jiu-jitsu, my brain. Jiu-jitsu, mate. Well, Give yeah, the boxing I've, I've, a miss and just do yeah, jiu-jitsu. But you don't, you won't, you won't get corporates to come to a charity jiu-jitsu. And they'll, they'll be asleep <laughs> after the first fight. But but that's that's what keeps me kind of wanting to get back into it. I'm like, I, yes, my brain might last an extra twenty years, 10, 20 years. Yeah. But if if I walk down the street and someone tries to jump me right now, I'm fucked. Like I haven't I haven't trained to throw hands in a decade. Right. Yeah. And I'm like. Yes, that that that's also part of the fear based kind of thing. Going, well, you've got to be ready for any threat, even if there is no threat there. But I think that's still a good way to be because, like what you're saying, no one cares. It's everything survival driven, and no one cares about my survivability more than me. Yeah, I can't leave myself in the hands of other people. Well, you know, you talk about this fear orientation. I think that's really interesting, right? Is like if you think about Eastern practices, coming back to that thing you talked about before, Ed. Before you begin meditating, you undergo what you call your preliminaries, which is the movement from a fearful, negative mind to a joyful, compassionate, positive mind, right? This is this transit. And then you're meant to start meditating. This, this quality is often lost on people. When I talk to veterans that I've treated, you know, hypervigilance is often a real issue. Yeah. And I'm like, what would it mean to change or shift your hypervigilance to awareness yeah now the perception is the same but what's motivating the perception is different yeah hypervigilance is a fearful based perception mode awareness or expanded awareness you're still aware of all the things in your environment but it's not being driven by being afraid it's actually driven by being calm and relaxed and centered that transition i think is really really important it's it's one of the most important things to to develop, and there's been a, I mean there's been a lot of research into this into the military in recent years, um, you know, with the development of kind of flow state experiences in combat and those kind of things. But that capacity to just have an open, clear awareness, if you can take the fear component out of the hypervigilance, that's what you get. You actually get an expanded awareness of the environment which is actually a resource, is actually an amazing thing. It's actually a heightened state of being without the kind of, you know, the negative effects on your body and your nervous system of being kind of mobilized the whole time and being terrified the whole time. And so what I would say is that training actually allows you to relax into the environment because you're like, I'm good, you know. It's, yeah, I'm good. If, like, if something happens, I think that, I'm good. that's connected um, to the, to the tribal connection thing as well. Like when, when you are trained in the military to be hyper vigilant when you hmm. perceive you're in a, a threat environment, but even when you know, like you see a bad dude or you know there's there's a high threat coming up, um, your your body's physically does become more alert, more aware, yep. go yep. into to fight or flight or whatever you're going through. But most of the boys still feel calm and safe because they've got their mates, mates. there. Yeah. Different when you leave. When you're alone, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, even the effect that this has on, I think we spoke about it uh, on a podcast before, about you see young, violent kids 
and you you know they and you get them into boxing and you get them into mm. training and it doesn't have the effect people think it does. No, it doesn't make them more violent. It the calms opposite, them down. The opposite they effect. don't go looking for fights. No, it has the opposite effect on them normally. I mean, not always, but normally it has the opposite effect. It normally channels, contains, controls. And look, you know, founder of karate, uh, Gichin Funakoshi, said the ultimate aim of karate lies not in victory or defeat, but in the perfection of its participants. And so there's the martial part, right? There's the war part. But there's also the art part. And over time, what happens is you begin to fall in love with an art form, not with the display of violence, so to speak. You know, like Ares, you know, the Greek god of war, was not loved, you know, by by the Greek people. Ares was brutal bloodthirsty, all those things. But you juxtapose that against Athenia, who was the other Greek deity of war, and she was about strategy, planning, calmness. And it's the balance of Ares and and Athenia which really martial arts provide to people a lot of the time. And I think good training generally does that. And I mean, when I say martial arts, I I don't mean just traditional combat arts. I mean, you know, I've seen that happen in shooting, archery, you know, any of those kind of things. It, it becomes a kind of meditation, you know. And I know guys who feel that way when they go shooting, you know. It's their, it's like this zen experience yep. for them. It like, yeah. whew, it calms them, it soothes them. They get into this moment, you know, just them, their breath and the target. Like whatever you need to do, I think it's good, you know. So, yeah, I really believe in that stuff. Because there's a lot of utility, uh, like stoicism, and we talk about the, like the old Stoics and yeah. and that. Now, uh, is there stuff that you see now that you're trained in it, um, where people have co-opted and you're like, that ain't, that's not you, mate. That's from you know, yeah, of course, later. of uh, course, yeah. And do you see? I, I I've got recommended by one of my mentors, um, like a couple of a couple of books, like Modern Stoics and that, and I found real utility in it. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've got a fair bit of the Stoics in me. I think I read Meditations by Aurelius probably when I was 12 or 13, I think. And so it kind of runs fairly deep in me. But I always have a kind of resident, a reluctance with the Stoics in the sense that there's a kind of, like, what do I love about the Stoics? Virtue. Virtue is the virtue, right? Yeah, like that's, that I think our society is lacking in people who are virtuous, right? People like really lacking. We have we have privileged people and incentivized people to be dirtbags. Like that's what we've done in our society. We we haven't privileged and incentivized virtue. So I love that about the Stoics. The notion of eudaimonia, um, you know, the flourishing soul in Stoicism you know, really takes the form of living through these virtues. But there's also a kind of rigidity or concretization, almost go as far to say as a denialism in, in some stoicism that I, that I always get a bit sketchy about. It's like you're trying to suppress these natural instincts. And for me, that's why, you know, if I think of the philosopher that I turn to for life, you know, rather than the Stoics, I actually turned probably more to Nietzsche, you know, Frederick Nietzsche's works. Because Nietzsche is, you know, Nietzsche will say something like, 
it is no small feat to overcome the tragedy of life, right? It's no small feat to do that. But in order to do it, you have to have an abundance of cheer. There are no great deeds that do not come from an abundance, right? In order, in order for me to take on a poison river, I need to be a great ocean, right? These are the kinds of things that Nietzsche says. There's a kind of expansiveness to Nietzsche. It's like, I'm going to be more magnanimous. I'm going to be bigger. I'm going to be more. You know, in Twilight of Idols, there's this, there's this great little section where it's a conversation between a piece of coal and a diamond, you know, and the piece of coal is like, why thou so hard, brother? And the diamond says, why thou so soft, my brother? <laughs> Would not you carve yourself upon a millennia? Would you not flash and cut? You know, and it's so, so my view is rather than kind of trying to suppress yourself into the, you know, denial that can come through with some stoicism, my view is like, be more, be bigger, be bigger trying to do this service in a in a small piece but your listeners will be able to tell i'm kind of big on the greeks but um two of the great deities that are important to know are dionysus and apollo and dionysus really plays in with a psychedelic piece apollo is the god of light sunshine the sun logic rules law right carved out of marble clear masculine the other deity is dionysus neither male nor female born of a woman but sired by zeus trained in the Eleusian mystery schools so in the psychedelics right that's where that's that's the training of now what happens is there's a famous play by um um called the Bacchae by Euripides and it tells this story of Dionysus returning to his home place right where he, where he was born and he returns and as he returns all the women run out of their homes and form a female horde and they arrive at the city and he asks Pentheus who's the king and in Thebes, this city, they worship Apollo. They worship reason and reason alone. He says, acknowledge me or I'll destroy you. And Pentheus says, no. Okay. Dionysus comes into the city. The walls of the city fall. The weapons and armor fall from the soldiers. The women and the prisoners run free. Right? This is a kind of... This is, think about this as the human psyche, right? The rigid, these are the rules, this is what I've got to have. This energy, this disrupts all that. It breaks, so it's madness. It breaks all this up. My psychological defenses fall. All my weapons, all my protections, they all fall apart. And the things that are trapped underneath come up, right? All the things from below. And at the end of the story, um, Pentheus goes out. And he's walking among the, the horde and his mother kills him and she holds up his head. She says, look, I've killed a lion. The reason, the head, the, the rational bit is destroyed. And so there's this tension between the Apollonian, the rational controlling part and the Dionysian part 
when we engage in psychedelics, what we're doing is we're bringing psychedelics to Apollo, right? The Apollonian mind is blown apart. You meet Dionysus. Unbridled Dionysus is madness. But there's also an Apollonian kind of madness as well. That's, that's what we see in our world, like the politics and all that. It's a kind of Apollonian madness. And so finding a way of bringing those together. Now, Nietzsche says, um, we Hyperboreans who worship Dionysus. Hyperborea is the land of the sun in Greek mythology. So we're, we're Apollonians, but we worship Dionysus. You see, like, so it's like these are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I'm not going to be all like pure and no, nah, it's got to be like this. And there's, there can never be any, you know, there can't be any of these feelings or difficulties or struggle. No, 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 it's both and. And so I sometimes use analogy. Apollo is a glass of water. Dionysus is a glass of wine. If you drank the wine by itself, it would drive you mad. The water's pretty fucking boring. <laughs> That's, That's good. good. The middle path is the wine watered down just enough to make things interesting. So sometimes when I think about stoicism, I feel like it's a little bit like a glass of water. just have the glass of water, man. And I'm like, yeah, but there's more to us than this. You know, there's more to us. And psychedelics in some ways are the natural craving for that Dionysian impulse. They're the natural desire to explore consciousness and the mind is is yin yang balance the 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 fundamental kind of um bridge between every philo philosophy through history well the middle path yeah i mean it's interesting isn't it so you think about societies that haven't held the middle path and you know probably the most interesting one one that i you know i, I fucking love spartan history right i fucking love it it's just the best but they were a completely unbalanced society. It destroyed them. Mm. Destroyed them. Like they, 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 they couldn't survive. And when you look at the fall of societies, you brought up Rome before, you know, the fall of empires, it's when they move out of balance. You know, they get into these kind of tensions that are unreconcilable. And so, yeah, I think, I think finding the middle path with those things is important socially, but also personally. And finding that that point of balance is, um, you know, is something we should strive for. I think. Yeah, no, because that, that that makes a lot of sense and has a lot of value for me. Because I've tried to be more stoic. Stoicism is kind of something I've, I've read a little bit into, and I'm like, I love because I'm a very logic kind of minded person, yeah. but at the same time, blow out and get super chaotic. Yeah, and I'm like that. That's where I'm at now, and I love the idea of stoicism. But then every time I have this like uncontrolled emotional response, that's I look back and go, that was pretty negative. You can you can do mm. better at that. I always learn something from it, and I'm yeah. like, there is I do like you say, I need to put a few walls around the chaos, and then just let yeah. it go for a bit. And yeah, well, Nietzsche famously said, um, one must have chaos within oneself to give birth to a dancing star, mm. right? So, it's an engine, you know, that that drives Absolutely. the human psyche. It's the unconscious. It has that quality to it. So. Yeah, I love a lot of Stoic philosophy and, and a lot of the values, particularly around the virtue. I mean, the stuff on virtues, I'm like, I can't get enough around. It's just the suppression of pathos. Sometimes I get a little, you know, rather than being suppressing, it just be more than it. You know, just be more than it. Why in this situation would I just try and detach myself and just be like completely relaxed and calm when I can be completely relaxed and calm because I'm bigger than it? 
you know. Um, what does Nietzsche say about that? He says, um, uh, I can't remember the quote. It, it's something like, um, what to you is a rain cloud is merely my feet or something like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know like you're like, oh, my God, it's so heavy. And he's like up above it. Right? Yeah. He's just like above it. It's just like, yeah, it's all good. And so the the word there that I love to use is magnanimity. You know, the, be magnanimous. Be bigger. Be be more virtuous. Be be larger. Um, and I, I feel like that intention with some of these these virtue values that you're kind of talking about are fantastic. So um, if I'm looking for the for the for the control part or the regulation part, I'd actually go to Buddhism because it's a much more nuanced approach, which gives you that same kind of capacity to manage. Now, the, you know, you probably all heard, you know, Buddha said life is suffering, but that's actually a really bad translation. It would be better read as life is reactivity. Like, like we're, we're, we're naturally reactive beings. The human mind has a negative perceptual bias of six to one, right? So like we will naturally orientate to bad things at a ratio of six to one, right? So like it's a real effort to move our mind away from the negative and from the bad. And so one of the things that Buddhism teaches is the capacity to regulate one's feelings, right? And to regulate one's mind and to hold one's mind in a kind of open state. And so I guess for me personally, that's really the practice that's been with me around that. And whereas stoicism is really you're doing it forcefully from the top down buddhism is actually a practice which actually makes you that way so you actually stop being reactive there's a um there was an experiment done with some zen monks in japan and uh, they get into a meditative state they've got the you know the helmet on checking their brain waves and they let off a cap gun and instead of getting a startle response inverted startle response they become more relaxed when the gun would go off well do you know what they did this with um you i mean you probably might know so they said uh you get a veteran yeah and you get him and you start putting some combat indicators in there that the contact is going to happen yeah uh, and you get a soldier who's never been in combat so a proper but a proper vet like yeah proper veteran yeah and you give them combat and so you get the unexperienced guy these combat indicators yeah their heart rates went through the, the roof, roof. they yeah. panicked they yeah. started rest rates went yeah. up everything and then the gunshot went off and just spiked completely. Yeah. Whereas the veteran, they saw the combat indicators and the heart rate, rest rate went up. Yeah. And then the gunshot goes off and, and then it drops set, down. Settle into it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yep. Exactly. Exactly. So you get these kind of shaping experiences. Like that's anticipatory, right? I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I know something's going to happen. I know what's happening. All yeah. right. So now we're good to go. Yeah, fantastic stuff, isn't it? Very interesting. The human mind and the human body is just so so incredible, like what it's capable of and the things that we can do and learn from. And, you know, many of us never really, in our society, as Adrian's pointed to before, never really experience our capabilities. You know, everything's, you know, so comfortable and convenient, deodorized, manicured, you know, sterilized into safety all the time. And this is one of the big problems is the question of risk. You've raised this issue of um, rites of passage. Yeah, rites of passage are are interesting because they always, you know, traditionally would involve risk. 
like real risk. You know, I always give this example of um, in Central America somewhere. I can't remember. I read this, but there's a snake initiation for these shamans. They dig this pit, fill it up with vipers. They put the shamans in there. The good shamans can walk through the pit out the other side, persuading the snakes not to bite them. The reasonable shamans can get bitten and transmute the poison and not die. And the ones that should have chosen something else are dead. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You know, like these are real, these are real undertakings. You either live or you die by it. Like these are not play things. These are not recreational. It's like Vanuatu as well, isn't it? With their rope, their vine jumpers. Yeah, yeah. Like the vine snaps, you die. It doesn't, you're a man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a whole bunch of. There's a whole bunch of these kinds of initiations, you know, throughout history. And, they're, you know, like we look at them and we're like, oh, my God, this is an Oc health and safety nightmare, you know. Well, I mean, Spartans are the best one. It's like, yeah, as a boy, you get sent out. It's like, you want to be a man in our tribe? Come Make back. Make it back. Yeah. That's, it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Make it back sometime. Yeah. 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 Here's the stick. Um, you know, no, exactly, right? And so, so the question of risk, like what are you prepared to risk? Like what are the risks that you're prepared to undertake for the transformation when you live in a society that's completely risk adverse, where you're not allowed to take any risks? Mm. Like you're literally not allowed to take any risks. You're like, there's a law against it. Yeah, yeah, there's laws against it. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this thing. I'm like, well, that's great, but where does that leave us? And you know, I mean, there's a lot of attempts to try and create safe rites of passage and all those things, which is great. Like I'm not. I'm not dissing that at all. I think we need something. But the question of risk is is a big deal. Like I need I need to know something about myself that often I'll only find in those moments or not find. Yep. You know, like is it the Maasai, you know, they um they tie a skin around their arm and walk up to a lion, stick their arm in the lion's mouth and and stab the line is that you know like <laughs> yeah, I'm good I'm like, yeah, I'm, good. I'm like I'm like I'll just opt out of that one yeah. but, you know but, but like you know something about yourself in that setting don't yeah. you so yeah I think ceremony and ritual uh, I think when we lost the church and I'm not religious but yeah. I think some of the things that the church instilled community yeah. religion um, ritual no I think you're spot on uh, even the stuff like when you have to pray at dinner time and, yeah. and all these like acceptance yeah. and thank, we lost that, mm. but we didn't replace it with anything. And now people no. are choosing their own adventure. No, well, this is the whole thing, man, right? So I'm happy on about Nietzsche today, but you know, Nietzsche said, uh, God is dead and we have killed him. And he essentially prophesied the nihilism of today. Because if you do not have a cosmological meaning given to you, then what you have to do is you have to create that meaning yourself. And so you have to actually create a meaning beyond yourself in order to make life worth living. And who today actually has that? We live in a world of selfish individualism, what the philosopher Charles Taylor would call an imminent frame, you know, where there is no transcendence possible. Right? Transcendence is God. We've killed God. So we've killed God up there. And we've stopped talking to the trees and the plants and the animals down here. So who is there? It's just human beings. There's one voice. And that one voice is lost in, the, in, in a sea of other voices doing the same thing. And so 
how do we find meaning and purpose? How do we find direction? How do I develop a personalized meaning? Well, I think you have to find a commitment to something bigger than you. Uh, something bigger than you and it doesn't you have to serve something we all have to serve some something and unfortunately a lot of people are serving things today that are going to destroy them the society the planet whatever we need to find a more thoughtful way of figuring out what we serve yeah absolutely I, uh, mate, this is my brain is going to hurt for three days after <laughs> this podcast. Um, that's been two hours of. That's of, two hours. That's yeah, two hours. That's, that's went quick. That's gone quick. All right, we're good. I mean, you guys want to finish up, or you want to keep going, or what do you want to do? Well, I mean, I mean, I think we've covered we've covered main topics, and you're definitely someone that we want to get on again. Yeah, yeah it's sure. just some up. We keep coming back, and uh, yeah, no, happy happy to come back anytime. Um, you know, I just. Uh, want to say thank you to you guys for all the work you're doing um you know i said i'm 100 support of you know helping out diggers and and veterans and you know anything i can do to help let me know but uh keep up the good work lads uh, yeah no worries up. thanks mate um just before we go wh- i mean what have you got coming up what's going on in the world what's keeping you busy and occupied oh. <laughs> uh a lot i've um i've just changed one of my job roles um so just got this associate professor role so hopefully doing a bit more teaching and and whatnot my medicine has a whole bunch of stuff coming up obviously there's rescheduling applications that have gone in there's clinical training going forward um nigel and myself you know continue to work in the space and to support this stuff moving forward uh look you know i probably should have like a you could check us out on something or other but i don't unfortunately <laughs> you don't you don't run your own socials no not, not i can barely do an email man. Yeah. i can barely do an email that's nah, probably healthier <laughs> so, so so i probably next time I'll, I'll i'll make sure there's something like that but um you know if people are interested in um you know anything i do have a a web page there's Mind Medicine Institute and My Medicine Australia both have web pages and contact pages there. Um, so, you know, reach out uh, if, if we can help. We, we, we will. But, um, yeah, I, I've neglected to do this. I, next time I'll get on to this. this, is, <laughs> this is, Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the self um, the self Yeah. yeah.